So before we jump into today's episode, it's important that we acknowledge that this conversation was recorded on the land of the Tongva and Chumash peoples. Panelists joined us from colonized lands throughout North America. We recognize the Tongva, Chumash, and all indigenous nations, tribes, and peoples for being historical and continual caretakers of these lands. Okay, three, two, one. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, depending on where you're joining us from today. And welcome back to another episode of the Ash Presidential Podcast focused on humanizing higher education. I am your co-host, Dr. Royal Johnson, Associate Professor of Higher Ed and Social Work. With tenure. Very much so tenured. uh, In Social Work at the University of Southern California and Director of Student Engagement at the USC Race and Equity Center. And shout out to my colleagues at the USC Race and Equity Center uh, and Sean Harper, who co-sponsored this. And I have the very distinct honor and privilege of working with my dear friend, uh, Dr. Felicia Commodore. (laughs) Thank you to my academic life partner here, Dr. Royal Johnson. I'm your other co-host, Dr. Felicia Commodore. I'm associate professor at Old Dominion University in the higher education and community. Tenured associate professor, very much so tenured. Don't forget the tenure. We are excited to keep our conversation going about humanizing higher education. And so... Today, we're back at it. We have some dynamic scholars and thinkers visiting with us today regarding not just what we do, but how we do it. That's right. We're talking methods and humanizing research design. And so we're going to have a chit chat about what we can learn about how we do our work and ways we can rethink how we do our work when we're doing research in higher education. So join us in welcoming our special guest, Dr. Jason Garvey, who is the Friedman Hips Green and Gold Professor of Education at the University of Vermont. Uh, we also have Dr. Jessica DeCure Gumby, my new colleague at the Woo! University of Southern California, who's a professor of educational psychology in the Rossier School of Education, and Dr. Chayla Haynes Davison, assistant professor of higher education, <laughs> Texas A&M University. So before we jump into our roundtable conversation, we want to have a little fun. We're going to do a little activity that we're doing with all our guests, and we call it This or That. So basically, we're going to give you two options to choose from. You're going to pick this or that. Just one. Just one. And so you're going to pick the thing that you most prefer. So I'm going to start with you, Jay, um, as a fellow musical (laughs) enthusiast. Yes. Yes. Rent or Wicked. Rent. Oh, Ooh. that was quick. <laughs> Very confident. I'm a 90s queer. You can rent all day, any day. I'm here for it. Rent. We love it. Without yeah. question. Of course, the connector is Nadel Dazim or That's whatever. That's it. Yes. See? They are kindred spirits. He knew where we were going. The yeah. one and only Adina Menzel. Adina Menzel. Adina Menzel. Yes. All right, Jessica, this one's for you. Folks may have saw the versus battles that were happening on Instagram and so forth. There was one that included two legends, Patti LaBelle versus Gladys Knight. You know, my husband and I went back and forth on that one. <laughs> my husband is from Georgia, so there's oh, no way he would he go going back against, to Georgia. Okay, midnight um, train. <laughs> there's no way he would go against a fellow Georgian, so... I have to go with Gladys Knight. Okay. Oh, we like that. Yeah, we like love Pally. 
you know, you know you but you know they're both hard. divas i mean you know <laughs> i love a, i love a good singer you know they, they just don't make them like that that's anymore. right yes they do not make it like that anymore you know we gotta love patty's pies too right you know i love a patty pie felicia does not like uh, patty's pie now see you about to get me in trouble <laughs> With Miss Patty, but I, just, but I like I like cooking. So, but Gladys, you know, Gladys had her restaurants. I mean, she you know, did. I just feel like Patty's actual pie probably tastes different than the one at Walmart, and Maybe. that's all yeah. I'm saying. Okay, all right. So, Chandler, we have a question I'm for not you. Wait for my question now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have I'm a ready. question for you, Chandler. Now, this you know, really think about this because you could cause. A firestorm yes. on the social media. Do you prefer ways in which or how? <laughs> ways in which. Oh. <laughs> I'm a ways in which person too. Don't tell yeah. Me. I'm sorry. But can I get in on this patty? Yes, yes, yes. Go ahead. Yes. Okay, first, can I tell you how many Patty LaBelle concerts my mother carried me to? Really? Don't know. In my youth. Do you hear me? <laughs> I know every Patty LaBelle song. So yeah, gotta go yeah. somewhere over the rainbow. And I keep the rent CD Ooh, in my car. Okay, nice. yes. <laughs> the the audience can't see me fluttering my wings like Patty. No, okay? I, I do like Patty LaBelle. No shade to Patty. Choice. Yes. Do you okay. The fashion, the <laughs> hair. You know, I mean, well, we know where Chella lands. She's. <laughs> Yeah, baby, all, I'm a, all day. I'm a if I can look girl, like her, you know, I'm a southern girl. So yeah, I, I mean, don't you, know, you can't. It's almost like Beyonce in any category. You can't put. There is no. Can't yeah. compare the two. Yes. So last can't, one. There be enough space for so black women. Yes. All of us. You know. But, last one for all of you. Citation manager or no citation manager? No citation manager. I yeah, none. I did use one when I was a doctoral student, but I don't anymore. I'm embarrassed to say I'm a copy paste kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. We're all just animals. I do that as well. I'm so sorry. I'm a Google Scholar. In the digital world. <laughs> <laughs> so so let, let me make you all laugh. When I was cleaning out my office, I came across all of my EndNote floppy disks with all my oh, well, not floppy disks. So, of course, I had to chunk those, right? Yeah. But yeah, I used to be an EndNote person, but then some kind of way I just ended up. You know, I think, you know, once the technology changed, I didn't change my technology. Yeah. And then I was like, you know, cut and paste those. Doesn't um, it feel citations. like just yesterday we were doing that stuff? Now, if you realize when you find your floppy disk, I've been in this. I haven't seen a floppy disk in so long. There has to be a museum oh. somewhere for those. <laughs> oh, yeah. Make sure you dispose of those carefully. <laughs> so I'm going to kick this conversation off because I know Felicia has uh, a, a contentious relationship with methods. She hates methods. She's method trauma. She's been traumatized by research methods. <laughs> so, you know, we wanted to focus this conversation on what it means to design and conduct humanizing research. And obviously we see all of you uh, as folks who are engaged in work in that way. And it's especially important in the moment now where we find that so many organizations, funders, journals, um, are soliciting scholarship that offers insight into the pandemic, its impact on communities, uh, the impact of racial strife and unrest and racism on, on marginalized communities. How should we as a field and as scholars be thinking about how we engage in that work? What is our responsibility uh, so as to avoid what Eve Tuck talked about uh, as damage-centered research? So our first question uh, for each of you is to first just tell us a little bit about yourself, the work you've been engaged in, and what humanizing higher education means to you. What's 
such a blessing about being in this field is that we enter this conversation with a lot of friendship and love and kinship. So it just feels natural to talk about emotions in this regard, mm-hmm. what we produce and how we produce it. And Felicia knows this. I'm a queer cancer emotional person <laughs> inherently is who I am. So I just think it's how I show up in the world with all of the blemishes and blessings that come with that. So I probably identify as a quantitative queer where I try to use post-structural and critical frameworks for intersexual liberation for queer and trans people in particular. Quant Methods has a dark history steeped in white supremacy and cis heteronormative violence. And so I often find myself thinking about my emotions in the process of conducting research. And I have to be frank with you, sometimes it's like in small moments where I'm like doing analyses with deficit-based comparisons and feeling really just crummy about how data are showing up in the world. Mm -hmm. And I have to recenter myself with a lot of grace and humility and say, I'm happy in this moment and I'm a queer person and I matter. And so that's enough in this small moment. And then in larger moments, I think about the power of quantitative research and addressing certain audiences. As a queer scholar, I look at all these brilliant folks doing narrative and community-centered qualitative research in particular. And for so long, I felt like an outsider looking in because I wanted Mm. to have my headstring and my heartstring connect Mm. in the way that others were. And I couldn't find that mix as a quantitative scholar Then I realized that I was just focusing on the wrong audiences Mm -hmm. and I was trying to do scholarship with us for us in a way that wasn't working for me as a quantitative scholar, which was when I really started pivoting towards policymakers and legislators and people Mm -hmm. who have a lot in the educational sphere, whether it's with finance or with equity or aspirationally with liberation and intersectional justice. And it really gave me a lot of purpose and a sense of home and grounding to redirect my humanizing stance for scholarship towards people who I think have enacted a lot of violence and queer and trans students and currently are enacting a lot of violence, but also hold on to queer futurities and hope that there may be a different landscape. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else want to share um, just their thoughts about humanizing higher education, their work? Come on, sis. Yeah. Oh, I just, I think, you know, I think about humanizing, um, you know, um, higher education. It's about making, making aware of the experiences of, um, of, of marginalized groups. For me, it's for African-Americans. It's about making sure their voices, you know, uh, are heard or they get to, you know, to tell their stories. Um, I do a lot of work um, that is based uh, using critical race theory. And so critical race theory is about kind of storytelling and allowing um, African-American students to talk about their experiences in education. Um, a lot of times, um, you know, we don't, you know, get to tell our stories or people discount our stories. And so for me, um, in humanizing um, higher education is about um, telling people that, you know, hey, I hear you, you know, your story is, is legitimate. Hey, you're not the only one experiencing this because a lot of times we're out there and we're thinking we're the only one. 
Um, and unfortunately, sometimes we aren't the only one, you know, experiencing, you know, such trauma, particularly around racism. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's, it's powerful for people to share those stories. And it's powerful for others to hear those stories, particularly when, you know, a lot of people don't know those things are occurring. And we can't, um, you know, you know, affect change if people don't know these things are happening. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important for us as researchers to, in humanizing research, um, to get these stories out, whether you're doing, you're telling stories quantitatively or qualitatively or in a mixed methods fashion, we have to, you know, get those stories out. The only thing um, I will add is that um, one of my lines of inquiry is um, critical race theory and intersectionality scholarship and methodologies. And using those critical lenses have really um, allow me to think of the ways or think about the ways that um, I show up, especially intersectionality. Intersectionality insists that Black women in particular in particular, live intersectional lives. Mm-hmm. And so in my research, I've been really thinking about who is this research for? So Royale's initial question was, People are starting to in the in the current context of the pandemic and um, and racial unrest. Mm-hmm. Agencies, researcher, research mm-hmm. bodies, funding mm-hmm. groups are really interested in our research, right? And so, what intersectionality and critical race theory has helped me to do is this is research for us, by us, about us. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so, while I appreciate your interest. <laughs> This is about our lived experiences. And so some of what uh, intersectionality methodology and black liberation research methodology has helped me to do is think about how do I work in solidarity with Mm. the other black people, black Mm. women who are concerned about our interests? How do we work together broadly? Mm -hmm. Like how do we um, orchestrate our efforts and research um, and use research and the um, quote unquote resources of the academy yeah. that are not always at our disposal, mm-hmm. right? How do we take up space um, and create our own uh, resources to do the work that matters most to us? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that is a short, that's a short way of getting it. <laughs> conversation no I think many of us who consider ourselves kind of academics or scholars or our orientation towards methods and methodology comes from our graduate school training and socialization and so a question I have um, for who wants to share is how how has your methodological stance evolved over the years since your graduate training in socialization. Jayla already had her I hands, see the hands up. up yeah. <laughs> Y'all know I'm a hand waver. It's Patty. Yeah. You know, I'm constantly waving my hands in affirmation and, you know, support my heart is with yeah. you in this question because um, I think a recent piece, my colleagues and I, um, I write, uh, Dr. Patton, Dr. Uh, Nicole Joseph, Dr. Saran Stewart, Dr. Yvette Allen, and myself write about intersectionality methodology. And we have a Mm -hmm. a chapter that just came out in our colleagues' uh, Black Feminist Epistemologies book. Yes, Uh, I just saw that on Twitter. I'm so excited. Right, right. And Dr. Kroom, 
Um, they do an excellent job of, of centering and, and creating space for the ways in which Black women researchers and Black women um, educators and policymakers think about doing uh, our work. And so in, in our piece, we write about, you know, how we made a decision to write ourselves into existence in, in, in this Black feminist tradition. This is not something we created. This is linked to these Black feminist traditions. And so for myself, I, I didn't attend any graduate school class that taught me how uh, to write Black women into existence. Uh, and in right. fact, I would arguably say they were teaching me, you know, initially, at least up until I got into my doctoral program. So even mm. my training um, and just my formal learning experiences, right? It, it, I've, I've written about myself and my own learning experiences in higher education classrooms. And so I say it, it taught me how to leave race out. It taught me how to mm. leave. My education taught me how to leave race out of the conversation, how mm-hmm. to show up mm. to make white people feel comfortable, how to be in these spaces um, and honestly perform whiteness at mm-hmm. an exceptional level. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, you know, I, that, that nothing taught me, no classroom until I had Dr. Patton Davis and Dr. Tewitt introduce me to thinking about, you know, how is Black women and Black feminist ways of knowing mm. and how to mm-hmm. integrate that into my writing. But even still, um, it, it was that commitment, arguably, of Black um, women faculty like Dr. Patton. And I'm certain all of us have had mm-hmm. our, our versions, Dr. Patton, if not her, you know, <laughs> um, teach us about how to think about this work and how to do it, how to write it. And it took mm-hmm. some work. When I look at my earlier, even my doctoral papers and some of my earlier writing, it, it's still taking work mm-hmm. like yeah. to think about it. In a, and, and I'll stop here. In a paper that I did with friends and colleagues, um, uh, Jasmine Hayward, mm-hmm. uh, Haywood, um, Drs. Mobley and Dr. Leonard Taylor, we use intersectionality to talk about our experiences as Black women faculty and Black men queer faculty um, and critical pedagogues. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we had to acknowledge that we're using intersectionality to do this, but Black people are rarely in- encouraged to engage in themselves, to engage their own consciousness beyond race. So this idea of that we're Black, this the world sees us and treats us and expects us to think of ourselves as not just black first but also black only Mm. so it's not until most recently that i'm thinking about myself in this gendered body and how my what my understanding is of my sexuality and how all these things are integrated Mm -hmm. in my life as Mm. a mom as a wife as how i see myself as a you know a whole person yeah. And how does that show up? And how do I create space for others to do the same? So we had to acknowledge that we're just coming into consciousness in this stage of life and mm-hmm. it's constantly happening. So mm. number one, give us space to do it, right? right? And number two, we're not concerned with your interest and our speed mm. to do it. Like this is about us first mm. and our consciousness and we do this for us first. And I think you bring up a really good point, right, of, of this actually having to maybe for some of us, those of us, and I think everyone um, here has uh, a, a marginalized identity that they they identify with, um, the shift from writing ourselves out of existence to learning how to write ourselves in existence um, and thinking about that. 
and and I want to take some liberty here and and talk to you, um, Jay, because it seems that that would be a little bit, for lack of better words, easier to do with qualitative work than mm-hmm. quantitative work, right? Which steeps itself in this idea of objectivity. Um, so how how has that experience been for you? How have you your your methodological stance, particularly from a quantitative approach evolved over the years around that. It makes me think about our time together at Maryland. Yeah. I mean, this has been a long time coming. And <laughs> I remember my first piece that I wrote, like kind of a methodological commentary was the exclusion of queer and trans people in federal and national data sets. Mm. And that was 2013. And I don't know if y'all remember at the time, Nessie, the Hired Research Institute, mm-hmm. the Department of Education, none of these data sets included sexuality or gender beyond the binary of man-woman. So here I was, this emerging quantitative queer, and I had literally no data sets to tap into. Mm. I, I really thank Sue Rankin and Noah Dresner for a lot of blessings in their mentorship and helping me navigate really politicized conversations about data access and availability. Mm. And I think now I just for years was looking for permission or community or grace or help. Mm. And as I've emerged in my career, I've just started embracing queerness and deviance and anger more. And rather than asking for access or permission, I'm much more likely now to call out the violence of policymakers, Mm. survey designers, in how harmful they've been for queer and trans communities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sad and angry to look at the policy landscape in education right now for trans people, for non-binary people, for queer people. So I think it's been like a huge emotional journey for me from... Oh, gosh, I remember my first ASH conference. The first thing this senior scholar said to me was, mm-hmm. oh, you are just too gay for me to handle. Oh, and wow. I like half laughed and left the conversation and then just sat in it for a while. And I was like, what the hell did I just experience? <laughs> it oh, was wild. And now I just love showing up to space, embracing my queerness, embracing mm-hmm. my faggotry and saying unabashedly, screw you. Mm -hmm. I don't need your grace and permission anymore. I'm going to express my anger. That part. Mm. Well, that's a good 360 (laughs) emotional. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just end it with that. (laughs) Isn't that a humanizing method? That's the humanizing method too. Yeah. Just to say, you know, I draw a boundary. Mm -hmm. I have made a Mm -hmm. researcher decision to Mm -hmm. use my anger. Right. Mm. So, I mean, this is why I love intersectionality, um, queer theory, right? Mm -hmm. CRT, because it creates um, a theory to method to methodological approach to method Mm. alignment. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Um, And so I tell folks all the time, like, you know, I this is why there's nothing easy about using critical yet intersectional frameworks in your research. It, it, It is cumbersome. But it's, mm-hmm. sophist- it's it adds a level of sophistication to your analysis. Mm-hmm. But you got to be willing to do it, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Just, you know, I, I, there's no snaps. I can't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 we have all the sound effects for you. Whatever you need. This is where you're for. All of that. So, but that is, I hope people caught that because that is me- that is the humanizing method, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. created alignment mm-hmm. from theory, mm-hmm. you know, to methodological approach, to design, to mm-hmm. method. Like, mm-hmm. it, there it was. If you're going to walk alongside me, you walk alongside my anger. Mm. Mm. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. I mean, I saw it. I heard it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jessica, um, as someone who I see has really pioneered uh, critical race mixed methods as an approach that folks that I use in my own work, I'm wondering how you sort of your methodological advanced and evolved over time to, to be able to really even offer that to the field, having been socialized and probably traditional approaches to doing mixed methods work. Ooh, that's the story. Um, you know, remember, I'm a trained psychologist. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, my area is educational psychology. Um, I, I, I do want to go back a little before graduate school. Um, I started, you know, I got my undergraduate degree from Louisiana State University, you know, LSU. Go and LSU is one of the few, well, at the time, you know, I don't know what they are now, um, but the, at the time, one of the few behaviorist psychology programs. So everything was antecedent behaviors, um, antecedent behavior, consequences, Skinnerian. So that's how they wanted to explain everything. And as a student, I just remember, you know, there has to be more to explanations than that, right? Mm-hmm. And so then I went to graduate school at the University of Georgia, and the college of education was constructivist. So I went mm-hmm. from behaviorism wow. to constructivism, to, you know, two ends of the spectrum. And then, you know, this then went to this whole, oh, you construct your learning and there's multiple views. And I'm so I'm saying, okay, now that's too far on the other end for me. <laughs> and then, you know, but it, it, it itself is very positivist, very post-positivist, mm-hmm. you know, psychology in general. So I was trying to find my way, have been trained as a very, you know, um, strong quantitative approach. And I started taking these qualitative approach uh, classes, trying to understand, okay, you know, um, you got to understand your conceptual framework and understanding, you know, your, your worldview. I'm like, my worldview, you know, <laughs> in psychology, you don't talk about that, mm. you know. And then, then then they said, well, there's all these things that's constructivism. There's all this. I mean, I had no clue, right? Because we we never talk about that in psychology. In psychology, it, you just do the study. You just right. have a hypothesis and you test it. You reject it or you fail to reject it. That's it, right? You know, and so... It was a complete shift in just thinking. But mm. I realized, even as a student and an undergrad, that there was more to understanding people's experiences than a p-value. Mm. And so I knew there was more out there. So when I started taking qualitative classes, I was like, okay, this is it. Okay, this is you capturing people's experiences. But I still don't understand this worldview thing. <laughs> I still don't have to figure this out. Because it takes a minute for you to kind of figure out yeah. what really captures your, you know, what you're understanding. Um, then my my um my advisor, he actually taught a class, a mixed methods class, and it made sense for me to kind of put it all together. Mm. Like, okay, yeah, put the quantitative with the qualitative. That makes sense, right? You know, but meanwhile, I'm still taking all these these methods, all these quantitative classes. I'm taking structural equation modeling, you know, you know, uh, factor analysis, because you mm. know, it's like, and, um, it's like, you know, we're serious about mm-hmm. psychometrics, right? We're serious about that. Um, so I'm taking all these classes, and then I'm taking all these qualitative. I mean, I took a ton of methods classes in graduate school because I'm taking all this stuff because I need to understand it. But it wasn't until I came across um, the, the seminal lesson, Dylan and Tate's mm-hmm. uh, article about CRT, you know, uh, um, 
her teacher's college record um, piece. Then yes. I'm like, I was like, shout ah, out to GOB and Bill Tate. Yeah, that was it. And then I'm like, that was it. And that was what I wanted to shape my study on. But you got to realize, and it's like there was no studies on race. You know, maybe Sandra may have only doing anything having to do about race and motivation. Maybe Cynthia Hubbard, literally one or two people. And then, you know, maybe picking a couple articles out of developmental psych or maybe one or two out of counseling psych. So there was nothing there in psychology about race and racial identity, what I was really interested in. So it was about pulling from other areas and trying to, to, to put this put all together. But it wasn't until I found that article, then I, then I took my job at North Carolina State University and I had a colleague there named Adrian Dixon who mm-hmm. happened to be Gloria Lassen Dillon's student. And then mm-hmm. we met and then I started working with, with um, Adrian and I, then I met her network of, of, of colleagues that were also Gloria students. And then I, you know, I met all these other people and then I really got more involved in and CRT. And then from there, I began to combine CRT with, you know, my traditional ed psych work and mixed methods. And, and then it just, you know, over time, it just, you know, I just, you know, created or, or you know, develop um, the piece that um, Royale was referencing that I published in Educational Psychologist. <laughs> but it was a long journey to kind of yeah. combine all those different disciplines mm-hmm. and try to make sense of those very different worlds. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, and, um, and and it takes time to think that way because, you know, as, as a graduate student, you know, you just, they just give it to you and it's like, here, here right, it is. Right, right. And then, you know, you just have to figure it out. Um, but, you know, you have like, what, um, I was in a fast track program and I had five years to do it. Okay, five years, figure it out. And, and <laughs> I didn't quite figure it out <laughs> in two years after I had graduated, you know, when I was a professor. Um, you know, really trying to really make sense of it. And, you know, and each year and everything I did kind of built off of the next thing. And it just took time. Yeah. Your comments are quite congruent with uh, what Shayla was talking about earlier. And in many ways, the academy plays a role in the production of docile scholars who are trained and uh, to be compliant with mm. the traditions and approaches to how we've you know, understand and study various phenomena versus pushing back and thinking, uh, you know, interdisciplinary, we're interdisciplinary field about how do we bring, bridge these various perspectives, theories to um, have more holistic approaches to studying what we're interested in. But this is one of my problems with the commonly used phrase of the best dissertation is a done dissertation, because I think it it socializes us into thinking that the goal is just production and not that the goal is producing something that is going to have impact and further knowledge, which opens us up to the idea of exploring methods and approaches and understandings of our work in ways that maybe we haven't done or haven't been so common. And so I kind of cringe a little when I hear that because it's like, no, the best dissertation is one that's done with care. So what are some steps that folks can take, especially for graduate students and early career scholars who may be listening, what are some steps that they can take to begin unlearning and relearning so they avoid the sort of oppressive colonial approaches that our graduate programs are often complicit in socializing them into to, to study research phenomena? I'm still somewhat of a traditionalist. I don't, you know, I mean, I still believe you have to take the classes to learn how to do mm. the methods, but you have to approach it in a very critical way. 
I mean, you still have to learn how to do the statistical methods or all the different qualitative um, methods, but you also have to go in there with a critical eye saying, well, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we asking these questions? And you have to be a voracious reader. I, you know, mm. I have a lot of students that, you know, they want to do these types of dissertations, but then you ask them, who have you read? Mm -hmm. They haven't read anybody. You have to read the original sources. Read. So you either go back and, you know, whatever it is you want to read, you have to read. I mean, when I was studying, studying racial identity, I literally read everything I could read on Black racial identity. I mean, I read all the way back to, you know, the baby doll studies, Kid, uh, Mamie Kenneth Clark. I, I mean, I the read foundation. before, I read the Horowitz yeah. studies, like in the 30s, like, mm -hmm. I mean, 20s. I mean, way back when. And I mean, and I had to literally go to the library and make copies. The stacks. Mm -hmm. Go to the stacks. stacks. I had folders, you know, like binders <laughs> and stuff. Exactly. And so they have no excuse. They can just get them on the PDF and order from the library. Yeah. So I'm not understanding why they can't read these articles. So, I mean, they have to read. Intellectual responsibility. Ask critical questions. Go beyond your your discipline. Mm, I never yes. could have done the things that I'm doing if I just stayed in my lane at Ed Psych. I, I mean, I had to go beyond the borders of Ed Psych to study anything having to do with Black people, mm. having to do anything with race, because it just was not there. You know, um, so, you you know, you have to be able to do that and just and, and don't be afraid to ask questions. And then for me, you know, if you want to ask complex questions, you have to, you know, if you want to ask complex research questions, you can't be afraid to do those complex methodological um complex methods yes and so yes. i come across a lot of students and say oh i have to get a statistician i get somebody to do that no if that's <laughs> what you want to do you need to know how to do it mm. um you know so i think students have to be willing to become methodologists themselves but that's the s psychologist i mean you know we believe everybody needs to be a methodologist and so <laughs> you know my colleagues may have different perspectives on that <laughs> one but you know because i love research methods uh you know they're, they're i think they're really fun but I, uh, so those would be the the main things I would suggest. So scholars before researchers, that's a piece that uh, I assign to students when I taught methods is that you got to read before you start doing, right? Like you have to be a scholar before you're a researcher. That's really important. For aspiring quantitative criticalists, it can feel like two communities that are diametrically opposed. And <laughs> I think that it can feel wicked isolating at times. And so the first I would say is just find your people. And I would love to be a part of that community with you. If you are that person looking for your community, I have learned a lot from Dr. Nicole Garcia, for example, mm -hmm. uh, how Dr. Dominique Baker connects quant yes. research transformation in a very community and identity centered way. And so there are a lot of good scholars out there trying to do community-centered, impactful work using quant methods. So um, be the beautiful, vulnerable person that you are and reach out to folks because we would love to mm -hmm. find friendships and relationships and love and solidarity with you. From a quantitative methods perspective, a lot of us have experienced harm from methods training in quant classes. Mm -hmm. Essentialized. <laughs> feeling harmed, like this whole deficit-based comparative analysis, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. feeling completely unseen in data access and availability, and even the huge dominance of straight white men teaching quant methods classes. Mm -hmm. So my plea is to push past basic inferential statistics and learn more in the same way that you were talking about, Jessica, like 
learn structural equation modeling because it is a really gorgeous way to explore the nuances of latent relationships in a really complicated way. And since we're critical scholars aiming towards liberation, we are asking systems-based questions and we require systems level data. Mm -hmm. Quant research data that we have is individual level. And so if we're using data from Nessie or from the Higher Ed Research Institute, we're studying students and ascribing responsibility slash blame to students. Need more systems level data. How do we get that? We learn how to do factor analysis, mm-hmm. how to create new constructs to measure oppression in new and innovative ways quantitatively. So I know it's really hard, and trying on the heart, but try to push through those methods classes, whether it's in a formal classroom learning experience or through all of these emerging fellowships for quantitative criticalism, especially for BIPOC scholars, there are really, really good opportunities out there to learn in a community that is affirming and wants you to learn in a way that centers your personhood. We talked a little bit, um, and you all have shared kind of in your journeys of navigating kind of norms in your your field or your area and norming around uh, methods. And, and, one of the places I think we, as scholars, those of us who write for academic journals, <laughs> the challenges, right, of doing new or more critical or rethinking kind of quote unquote traditional methods is how do we get them published, right? And so could could you all talk uh, to what barriers or challenges you've experienced or we might anticipate in trying to do more humanizing research. So even with my, um, or especially with the doctoral research that I supervise, most um, students come to me when they want to use critical frameworks Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I'm excited by their research. And I often find myself saying, how does intersectionality support you to do this innovatively? Mm. often they'll present some of my students will present this is a challenge because so um I have a student right now who's saying things like um well I want to use a case study methodology um but I'm concerned about um my study design and my participants and what you know IRB might say in regard to choosing because they're looking into um, title IX and the experiences of trans women of color And so I keep pushing back on how might you address this challenge using intersectionality? Mm. How does intersectionality support you? And what I'm hoping that they arrive to on their own in our (laughs) mentoring and conversation is you be innovative about it. You can't answer an intersectionality question using the master's tools. Mm -hmm. Can't, (laughs) Right? right? You have to, you have to, think differently. What is the possibilities? What are you bringing that's different? That's breaking the frame, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, I could do your research for you, but I'm (laughs) going to help you. You know, I keep pushing back. How does, you want to use intersectionality. So how does intersectionality support you? And this is creating that alignment that, you know, and from research question, right? 
to methodological approach to methods. Yeah. Like you got to pull that theory all the yeah, way through, through line. all the way through. It can't be something that you introduce, you know, I'm using intersectionality just to talk about why students are different and have experience, experience a campus differently. And then I've wiped, then I've dropped intersectionality <laughs> conversation. Right. No, how does your, how do I see intersectionality in your research question? Mm-hmm. Now, how do I see you're using intersectionality methodology? Great. Now, how do I see it in your method? So how do you pull it through? How, explain it to the IRB using intersectionality. You yeah. can do it. I see it. Mm -hmm. i taught you intersectionality just keep thinking (laughs) keep thinking keep reading keep thinking keep reading keep thinking it's not an easy thing you gotta spend time doing it so that's i don't know if that answers your question but i think that we can use these theories to support us to create that alignment Mm -hmm. it's there Mm -hmm. and we ought not think we can use the same We, we can't we have to put it down. I mean, intersectionality gives us permission to say, you know, I don't have to do it this way because it erases me. It creates intersectional intersectional erasers. It creates, um, you know, intersectional failures. Mm. It, it, I have to, I can't in order to address these with what um, Patton and Najuko call intersectional interventions. Mm. Like mm. I have to think differently. I can't use this model it this this set of methods don't work for the quant folks i'm wondering are what challenges or issues have you experienced in the publishing process especially for making different sorts of decisions about how you um, categorize different Mm -hmm. social identities make decisions about what comparisons you make or not make and the expectations for review from reviewers to do some of these things What, what, what are some of the issues with that so many, <laughs> so many. <laughs> I think the biggest limitation that quant scholars are experiencing now is not naming intentions for the decisions that we're mm. making. Mm. And I think that's, if I had to boil it down to one thing, what differentiates post-positivism from quantitative criticalism is naming intentions and impact. Mm. As how I run an analysis, how I classify sexual identities may not look decidedly different, but my intentions and my intended audience may have profound differences. So that's the, that's the difficulty of it. And I think as quant scholars, we've been trained to embrace subjectivity Mm -hmm. and generalizability and productivity. (laughs) And I just think all of those just feed into this white supremacist notion of academia as us as machines that are Mm. lock and step for whatever we need to do to advance our selfish careers. And I think it's just exhausting sometimes because we are so conditioned as quant scholars to embrace that. It's kind of a paradox, though, because quantitative criticalism isn't one epistemological focus. There are different approaches to this. Mm. For example, quant crit, which embraces quant methods with critical race theory, would likely say incrementalism is a tool of white violence. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we often have to live in these paradoxes of not really fulfilling or finding that threshold of criticality in ways that other methodologists do. So I think 
naming your intentions is one way of dispelling that secret nature of quant research. But in the publication process, it's really hard for the real estate space, mm-hmm. uh, positionality statement or community impact statement. Mm. Um, so I think writers are just as responsible as editorial leadership in mm. not hoping that quant scholars will write them, but when quant scholars don't write them, um, requesting that they do. Calling that out. Yeah. Helps in their personhoods and their research. I just want to say that <clears throat> researching race is difficult. Mm. Researching race is political. Mm-hmm. And this is long before this whole anti-CRP thing right. started. Right. You know, I've had a hard time researching race and publishing about race, you know, long before this whole stuff started. Um, you know, I've had trouble getting IRBs through mm. uh, because of perceptions of difficult questions. I've had trouble, you know, even with school districts, you know, we're okay with my doing my study. I've had a school district say, well, you know, I like your study, but I don't like any of this stuff about race. I don't <laughs> like any of this stuff about gender. Mm-hmm. But we're studying, you know, students of color and girls' experiences are their, you know, goals of, you know, going into career, science careers. Mm-hmm. So if we take out the race and gender, you just killed our study, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, even told us, oh, we want you to change these questions. So that means, you know, so I've had a lot of issues with just even getting into schools, um, you know, even my dissertation years ago, right, you know, schools didn't want me to go come in there to study race because they were afraid I was going to find something and bring up something, you know, so so studying race can be difficult in itself. So just even getting your study off the ground can be hard. So I want to make sure we get that out there. Um, but even publishing, you know, I'm in, I'm in Ed Psych, you know, it's hard publishing about race and essay because people don't really study race and essay. Mm-hmm. Unless mm-hmm. you know you're studying kind of almost like a demographic variable, like you're studying like this group versus this group, right? On, on this particular um, you know construct, you know how much you know achievement, how do they score on this achievement motivation? You know, think yeah, that's how they study race, but not as a construct like uh, you know um, experiences with racial identity or you know um, racial discrimination. Not not you know that's not the type of thing that they do. In, edu- in educational psychology. So it's very hard to publish in those areas. So, you know, those of us who do that work are interested in those kind of kind of studies. We have to publish in other journals. So that means that we have to be, mm-hmm. you know, we have one foot in ed site, but we have to have a foot in all these other different areas. Right. And so you're reading all kind of other literature. You have to be aware of these other things. So you have to kind of be abreast of various fields if you're mm-hmm. going to do racial work um um so don't think you just only have to publish in your only field you have to be able to publish and be aware of other fields mm-hmm. and um you know in some and even then you know you still have to be aware of how they want you to pu- publish it i know that's gonna mm. sound sound strange but you know sounds like a pragmatist to me it makes my heart flutter <laughs> yeah certain narratives you have certain narratives you have to kind of give right mm-hmm. and, you know but that's the kind of publish you have like in certain that story you want to tell, but that stories that they want you to tell in order to get it published. And so that's you have to constantly ask yourself, what am I willing to compromise mm-hmm. in order to get this piece published in this journal? And that's a question we always have to ask ourselves mm-hmm. for regardless of what we're going to publish, wherever we're going to publish it. I would agree with everything that's been said. And one of the things that I 
in my own work has struggled with, right? So methods, and this goes back to uh, Dr. Commodore's initial thought, like a good dissertation is one done with care. And that's true about all research. Mm -hmm. And that's the humanizing method, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, my thought is in trying to do research earlier in my work, um, using, even using intersectionality coupled with you know, I, I'm a grounded theorist by, mm-hmm. by training. So um, in CRT, so in my dissertation, CRT and grounded theory, I I was able to engage in what I would consider humanizing research on behalf of racially and ethnically diverse college students and myself as a Black woman researcher studying white racial consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I did in my dissertation. But even as a grounded theorist by training, I... I had to figure out how, like, how do I do that and care for me doing mm. that type of research? Like mm-hmm. that, my, I'm studying white supremacy. That's the root of my research question. How does it show up? So how do I, how do I experience that myself in the research? What I struggled with in my own methods is just thinking about um, these, I'm using critical theories, but I didn't always have methods that kind of pulled the theory all the way through mm-hmm. to allow me to even engage in deeper humanization and deeper liberation, not just for my participants, but also for me. So what I like about intersectionality methodology and Black liberation research methodology, I emerged in doing some of that research where that those um, methodological approaches came out, is what we discovered in doing it is now our colleagues have a methodological approach that is connected to these frameworks Mm -hmm. right and what publishers so what we would argue with that those methodological approaches is that it allows you to engage in um theoretically uh rich right sophisticated analysis Mm -hmm. and so you'll be hard pressed for any reviewer Mm. To, to say that this is not sound research. Mm-hmm. This is sound research. Now, doesn't, I mean, white supremacy is white supremacy. Right? <laughs> right, so right. It's not, it's what Dr. Pat and I say is like white supremacy resists the undoing of itself. So you will have yeah. naysayers. You will have people saying like, this is, I'm not about it. But they can't question the research rigor. Mm-hmm. Right? The re- because it has alignment. Right? It's theoretically it's it's de- designed well it's a it's a sound study right. yeah you're giving um, us the methodological tools right. to harness so now the full capacity of the I theory think yeah. that and the truth of the matter is that even in our study of scholars who study black women and are using what we would argue is um these features of intersectionality methodology when we went back to look at where these out of 600 or so studies over a 30-year period, 23 researchers were actually published doing intersectionality methodology in these ways that brought visibility to Black women. Mm -hmm. Those 23 studies were all published in either um, what we would consider second tier or uh, highly impactful because they were race or gender journals but rarely were they in you know what the academy would say are the premier or highly selective right right so we talked about it as a politics of publishing and where black women show up 
in the literature, mm-hmm. if at yeah. all. And so we contacted those those authors to, and scholars to say, hey, tell us about your publication experience to get this research out. Mm-hmm. And they acknowledge it's a struggle. Yeah. And so what I think, like I said, those methodological approaches help us do that it can get, perhaps if you want it, you don't have to publish it in those places. Mm-hmm. You publish it where you want it to go. Yeah, I, I think that brings us to... Um, Really great thinking about because, I mean, we talked about the challenges and barriers. And I think what we can say is the existence of you three scholars does give us hope, mm-hmm, yes. <laughs> right, that there can there is an opportunity in space for new um, ways of approaching our research and, and engaging in more humanizing research methods. And so I just wonder if um, if you could give me one maybe promising or underutilized approach to research that you would hope our listeners would be aware of, what would that be? I don't know if this is underutilized, but I think, you know, you should really try to make your research study as parsimonious as possible. Um, Meaning, you know, you know, try to keep it as simple as you can methodologically. Um, Because I think, you know, I I have a lot of students, they, you know, they come, they have these grand methods and I'm going to do this, this, that and the other. But I realize that, you know, you can have a simple design and still come out with amazing results and Mm. all this stuff. Because once you start writing, you write that that long, you know, lush um, uh, lit review and then these findings, it's still going to be a lot. You know, and so, you know, it's it's one study, you know, and you build, you continue to build off the study. That's how you have your career. And so when I tell students, like, I know you might, I love mixed methods. I teach mixed methods. I have a mixed methods textbook. But, you know, maybe this study, maybe the questions you want to answer are best answered from just a quantitative approach or just a qualitative approach. You know, you don't have to necessarily put, put them both together. So I think, you know, so I think if, you know, let's keep, keep it, keep the design as simple as you can and then spend the time, you know, creating the best getting the best, um, you know, instruments you can or, or getting the best um, uh, interview questions you can and getting the best data collection you can. Um, and then, you know, really focus on getting that, be- you know, getting, doing the best study that you can do. Um, just keeping it as, as simple because we all know no matter how much you design a study, things go wrong. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, timeline <laughs> gets thrown off. I mean, yeah. all kinds of things happen. And, you know, and that way, if you can kind of take that little level of stress off your plate, you know, I mean, and I think it just kind of gets better. So I I, that's that. just the advice I give my students. Let's keep it simple, you all. Let's just yeah. kind of. I always ask simple. my students, like, what methods are appropriate for answering the questions that you want to answer? That's Sometimes it. they come in like, I want to do photo voice. I want to do. Th-. I'm like, but your research questions don't align question? <laughs> with that. What are the yeah, what are the yeah. methods that are appropriate the for that? Question leads the method. Mm-hmm. How about others? Yeah, the good old question. And just focusing on the question. And sometimes they have too many questions, and we might need to scale those questions oh, yes. back. Let's oh, save yes. those questions. Those are great questions. Let's save them for study number two. Yes. But you know, but I did like those questions and keeping it simple. And I think, you know, even, you know, even we, we all are, we all are uh, you know, guilty of that too, right? You know, we all want to do this grand study, but then, you know, when you start really thinking about how much time and resources and all that, we can't do all that. So let's just kind of keep it narrow <laughs> right. and then and do the best we can with that and then roll with it. I'm going right, to say, I'm going to do the best with what I got. I, got. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, one of the methods that intersectionality has really helped me think about has to do um, with um, working uh, with participants. So one of the um, 
features of intersectionality methodology is centering Black women as a subject, namely as thinking about Black women as knowledge producers and, and um, knowledge holders, right? Mm -hmm. And so, or sources of knowledge. How, we, how does that methodological approach translate in methods? Mm -hmm. So if, for example, mm -hmm. um, looking at the experiences of um, Black women who are learning from a black woman teacher, black women doctoral students who are learning from a black woman teacher, but also together learning about black women. So I'm engaged in a study where that is the aim, or that is the subject matter. Mm -hmm. And so um, wanted to do a focus group with some of the black women in, who took two courses on black women with me. Mm -hmm. And so I, hmm. in my um, doctoral student collaborator, we generated a protocol but we shared the protocol with the focus group participants and said, mm -hmm. um, as a way of centering Black women as a subject, as knowledge producers and knowledge sources, we here's our protocol, how would you change it? Mm -hmm. What's not being asked that ought to be? Mm -hmm. Let's think about, we already engaged in the learning together. We're centering Black women as a subject, ourselves as participant, knowledge holder, knowledge producer. Let's figure out together what the interview protocol should look like mm -hmm. and gave them an opportunity not just as we do the focus group, but also in building of the protocol, how did, what are the questions that, yeah. that ought to be asked? How would you change this? So that's just one way of pulling the intersectionality as framework through the methodological approach through to the method. Mm -hmm. I think I just have two brief things. One's an attitude adjustment and one's more of like a analytic insight. I'm, feeling very inspired in this group and just thinking a lot about community and kinship and especially in quantitative communities, I feel like there's this intellectual competition or this scarcity mindset of methods expertise and serves people's egos and their individual mm. advancement of, of communities. <laughs> so I guess like the mindset change that I'd like to emphasize is that like building community and coalitions is mm. time well spent an auxiliary activity related to the research. It is, it is the work. It, the process of how we mm -hmm. do quantitative research, is just as, if not more important than the products of our quantitative research method. So, that's the the attitude change that I'm thinking about, and that also relates to like, I feel like quant scholars want to like flex their methods expertise and, <laughs> so like, Chill. demonstrate the sexiness of their different methods. <laughs> But I think there is a great power in descriptive stats and data visualizations. Mm. So underutilized in mm. education research, particularly in the policy landscape. Mm -hmm. And you are trying to shift policy reform or resource allocation. Ain't nothing wrong with some powerful descriptive stats mm -hmm. and the illustrative data visualizations. Mm. Thank you. In, in the spirit of the theme of the conference in this podcast, we have a final set of questions before we wrap up. I'm wondering, how are you finding and creating joy for yourselves these days? And what's something most ASH members may not know about you? Um, for me, it is a life or death type thing. Like mm. I have to, it, it is something about being present and drawing boundaries and creating space for myself that is so super important, particularly at this time in my own life. Like there's so much going on in the world that just 
frustrates me. Um, and so, yes, the joy part is one of those like, yes, I'm all about it by any means necessary. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the ways in which I try to find joy is really just being present in the moment and creating space. So and throughout my day, I spend more time these days around family as much as I can so that it just keeps me present minded that I'm a whole person, you mm. know, I'm not just my work or I'm not what the world says I am. Uh, and that there are um, a, a means to this, that like you work to live, you don't live to work kind of mm-hmm. thing. So that's me. Something that many ash members may not know Mm -hmm. i don't know um (laughs) i would say i mean i'm from no i think ash members know that Uh, (laughs) i was gonna say i'm from the washington dc area um and so you know that is that 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 home that has my heart Mm. eight eight or nine generations of my family born and raised there and I'm the lone one out here in Texas. So they're all like, one day we may come visit you. <laughs> so like, yeah, that's, those are my roots. I feel really blessed that I'm surrounded by a lot of community and love with my colleagues, Dr. Tracy Ramula-Bali Singh and Dr. Tiffany Spencer and Dr. Britt Williams and all of the fabulous HESA students at the University of Vermont. And I think we've built this community to recognize that our worth is inherent as people, as Mm. loved people, and that it's not tied to our work. Mm. And it took me a long time to unlearn this, but my faculty career and my scholarship are not the center pillar of my life. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so related to that, things that ASH members may not know about me is that my partner and I just bought a beautiful new house in the- It's gorgeous. (laughs) and we just so it's a season of love and just really embracing this beautiful loving my work i love my work so much um but dan is the center mm. of my universe mm. and that brings me a lot of that's beautiful yeah i know <laughs> you might make me believe in love i don't know <laughs> Mate, I'm learning something. Just start singing What About Love, but I'm just <laughs> But what about trust? What about trust? What about tenderness? Tenderness. What about tears when I'm happy? What about joy most joy now as um you know finish home my family um just me, me and my husband and my son and my son is he's a teenager so um just spending that time with him you know he'll be out the house before before you know it so just mm. spending that time and you know we we 
we, we do a lot of TV watching. So all the Netflix and, you know, mm-hmm. Paramount Plus and then watching all of the shows that we like to watch and just kind of just spending time watching TV. We Also, we watch a lot of news programs. So mm. we sit there watching the news. We literally put it on pause and then have our commentary oh, and talk man. about our perspectives and opinions. And, you know, just like we, you know, like we like, like we're political commentators, right? Mm-hmm. And then we put, you know, then it was a press play again. But, you know, <laughs> that's our family time and that brings us a lot of joy that we get to spend that time together. Because um, my mom passed away when I was um, in high school. My husband's father died when he was young as well. Mm. So, you know, so we know how it feels to not have a parent. You know, so, um, so we definitely want to make sure our son knows that he's loved, mm. knows that he's supported, and it's been all the time that he has with both his parents. And um, this is a it's a great time for us. So that brings that. me a lot of joy. Um, one thing that a lot of people don't know about me, not just Ash, mm-hmm. um, I am a huge Barbara Streisand fan. Really, I, I have a number of Babs yeah. records. I yes. love Babs. I mean, I one time we flew out from North Carolina all the way to San Jose to go hear Babs Ooh. for the Babs concert. But I like all the big singers. I love Whitney Houston was my favorite, mm. and um, you know, I love Celine Dion, Adele, you like, like the big voices. Deep, oh, Mariah Carey. Yes. Those she are, said she those does vocalists. <laughs> vocalist. That's you know, vocalist. Good enunciation. You know, those <laughs> are the people I like. You gotta have that good enunciation. Big singers. <laughs> That's what I like. But Barbara Streisand, she is just one of my favorites. Love it. I love it. Well, we just want to thank you all yes. for this thank you, thank great you, conversation. I'm mean, thinking, if you take anything away, um, is the importance of community and doing this work and continuing to continuing to learn and reinvent and reframe and recreate. And and so, um, like I said before, the three of you here, I think, give us hope. Uh, future scholars, existing scholars of what we can do and how we can push our work to be more humanizing in the way we approach it. And so, again, I want to thank you, Dr. Jake Garvey, Dr. Jessica DeCreer Gumby, and Dr. Chayla Haynes Davison, for your time thank you, thank and for you, sharing with us. And, and yes. thank you so much. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Jay Garvey. Dr. Jessica DeCure Gumby, and Dr. Chayla Haynes Davison for joining us today and getting into the nitty gritty with us regarding humanizing methods in higher education research. And I personally appreciate their pro bono work helping me through my own methodological issues. It takes a village, y'all. Those of you who have been along for the ride with us so far know that at the end of each conversation, we like to engage in a segment called Scholar Soundtrack as we reflect on what musical selections rang in our minds as we think about the day's conversation. Today, the song that came to mind was Lose Myself by Lauryn Hill. at the heart of it all, our scholars came to do work that they could love by facing their fears and the methodological boundaries set for them by losing themselves in a deep love for not only themselves, but the populations they did work with in order to figure out how they could do work and engage in more humanizing methods. Well, 
That was today's song for our Scholar Soundtrack. You'll be able to find a playlist of these songs along with the syllabus for today's episode and all of the episodes in the Ash Presidential Podcast Series. These conversations continue to inspire us and make us think. Get ready, y'all. We have more exciting conversations to come. You don't want to miss this. Join us next week as we continue to discuss humanizing higher education. Till then, I'm Royale. I'm Felicia. Until next time, keep keep it human. human.